As we consider this wonderful truth from God's word together this morning, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come into this room today probably with a whole host of emotions. Many of us weary, weary from the sin of the world, weary from our own sin, weary from the sin of others that affects us deeply. We need your word today. We need courage and encouragement that comes from you. And so we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us a word of hope, a word that strengthens us and gives us courage for the days that lie ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the 1980s, a reading phenomenon swept through my elementary school. I wasn't much of a reader, but along came a very popular and unique series of game books written for and marketed to boys my age called Choose Your Own Adventure. And they captivated me. These Choose Your Own Adventure books were written in the second person, and the reader became the main character in a story who was embarking on some fantastic journey or epic mission. And at the end of every page was a cliffhanger with two possible choices that would make you flip to different parts of the book. And the choices you made would change the course of the story. And the result was a branching plot with a few good endings and plenty more bad ones, often resulting in death. And no matter how many times I tried, I could never seem to solve the puzzle and achieve the goal. I usually died just a few pages in. And I would try again, and then I would die again, over and over, in fantastic new ways. <laughs> and that didn't stop me from buying more books, thinking I might have better luck with other stories. But no, I died early, and I died often. And, confession time, even when I tried to cheat, I couldn't win. And it made me feel better when I stumbled across an article entitled about these books entitled, Most Likely You'll Die. <laughs> there are communities of disgruntled adults that have mapped out all the possibilities of these books just to prove how difficult it is and how improbable it is to win. It doesn't get nerdier than that. It's like, come on, people, move on. Now, there's a part of me that misses those days of youthful innocence, when for all I knew, the greatest danger before me was getting sucked into a whirlpool or getting attacked by a vampire. And even when I met those rather unfortunate endings, I could always just start over and try again. And I don't need to tell you that death in real life doesn't work that way. Many Christians around the world, even those who are the same age I was when I read those ridiculous books, face very real decisions about life and death on a regular, if not daily, basis. Eliza, age 19, lives in West Africa, and she placed her trust in Jesus back in 2019. And when she did, she felt convicted to throw out a healing stone that a witch doctor had given her. And when her family discovered that she'd done this, they threatened her to stop attending church. And when she refused, they beat her and broke her shoulder. Sister F is a longtime Christian leader in Iran who's currently serving a two-year prison sentence because of her faith in Jesus. And just this past March, officials in Eritrea raided a house church gathering and arrested 29 Christians, all of whom are presently under custody facing some of the worst prison conditions in the world with little to no hope 
of seeing loved ones. And nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, a one-time persecutor of Christians turned a follower of Jesus, was imprisoned in Rome for his Christian faith. And unsure of whether he would be absolved and released or executed, he wrote a brief letter of joy-infused encouragement to his fellow Christian brothers and sisters in a city called Philippi. We're studying this letter to the Philippians in a series called Stand Firm with Joy. And in our passage today, in Philippians 1, Paul acknowledges that there are two choices before him, life and death. And while they really aren't his choices, he uses that word to address the fact that his own death is a very real possibility that lies before him. He had actually made his choice long before, when he chose to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ, even under the threat of persecution. And by his own example, Paul models for his Christian readers what it looks like to find joyful confidence in our future deliverance, even in the face of death. That's the theme of this passage. And there are two movements in this brief passage. In the first, Paul provides for us the five reasons that he has this joyful confidence. And in the second, he lays out benefits for the two options that lie before him, both life and death. Now, if extending our pres- or preserving our life in these bodies on earth is our ultimate goal, then we'll make decisions and choices to that end. But if there is an eternal life after death, and if there is a judgment to come, as Jesus taught over and over and over again, then we need something more than our own efforts to squeeze all that we can out of this life. We need more than tips and tricks to extend this life. What we need is confidence in our ultimate vindication from the final judgment. We need reminders that this is not all there is and that the decisions that we make in this life have eternal consequences. We need the comfort that comes from Christ's finished work for all who trust in him. And we need to be utterly convinced of our future deliverance. So let's consider Paul's reasons for his joyful confidence. And he begins by telling us in the the second half of verse 18 in chapter 1. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The first thing we see is that Paul is rejoicing. We learned about that last week. He's rejoicing because Christ is being proclaimed. Even if it's through the ill motives of the people who are preaching, he's being preached. And he tells us he will rejoice. Why? Because he knows that he will be delivered. He has joyful confidence in this deliverance. Now before we look at some of the reasons for his confidence, we need to understand just exactly what he means here in this context by deliverance. Some have taken it to refer to Paul's deliverance from prison. And others see it referring to his ultimate salvation in the last day. And there's always the possibility that he's referring to both. Well, I understand Paul to be emphasizing his future salvation from sin. And what helps me is the wording at the end of verse 19. He, he writes, this is in the ESV, this will turn out for my deliverance. In the Greek, this is an exact quote of Job 13.16 from the Septuagint, which was the earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, what we now call the Old Testament. But couldn't this just be a coincidence? Well, that's possible, 
But we have to remember that Paul was a serious student of the Hebrew Bible even before he became a Christian. And he knew the Old Testament and he knew it well. And so I think he's using this quote very purposely. In this particular section of Job that he quotes, Job's so-called friends are blaming him for the devastating misfortune that has struck him and his family. And instead of doing what they should do, offering and supplying encouragement, they offer chastisement. And Paul is facing a similar circumstance. We learned last week there are some from within the church who are opposing Paul and seeking to do him harm for some unknown reason. They see his imprisonment as an opportunity to pile on him. And so Job responds to his critics in 13.16, this will be my salvation. That is, this circumstance, this situation will result in my salvation despite my misfortune. In verse 15, Job says, I will hope in him, that is, in God. The whole context of this section of Job that Paul is quoting is about God's salvation despite difficult circumstances and unhelpful friends. And so it is with Paul. He's finding confidence in his ultimate salvation, even though he's in prison facing death. Even though there are those who are professing Christ and who are strangely happy to see the Apostle Paul fail. And so the context of this quotation helps us to see that Paul is identifying with Job in his suffering and he's borrowing Job's confidence in his own future salvation despite his potential execution. And now Paul alludes to five reasons for this confidence, starting first with the providence of God. We see this in one simple word in Philippians 1.19. This. This will turn out for my deliverance. What is this that he's referring to? This is referring all the way back to verse 12. That this is what has happened to me. That is the obvious challenge and the apparent disadvantage of being in prison and awaiting a trial that could result in his death. This is his current situation. It may look bad, but it is not random. It was not purposeless. It does not fall outside of God's control. God's purposeful sovereignty governs everything. And if even a seemingly insignificant bird cannot fall to the ground apart from God's sovereign hand, then neither can an innocent man be imprisoned apart from his hand. And Paul, he knows this. And this is one reason for his joyful confidence in his salvation. It should be a reason for our joyful confidence as well. Alec Mateer writes, The Christian need never fear the outcome of events. Life brings, as we say, its daily pressures. Many of them are unexpected. Often they seem uncalled for. From time to time, they're traceable to the malignity of wicked people. But God is over all, and there is no point in believing in a sovereign God if he can be tumbled off the throne by a human or satanic agency. God is sovereign. And Paul is in prison because of God's providence. And Paul will one day be delivered from prison because of God's providence. And Paul will one day be delivered from his sin in the last day because of God's providence. There's a second reason for Paul's confidence, and it's the prayers of God's people. Verse 19 again. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, in contrast to those who are preaching Christ out of selfish motives, 
and seeking to do Paul harm in the process, his friends in Philippi are lifting him up in prayer. One of the precious means that God uses to accomplish his will is the prayers of his people. And Paul has already given the Philippians a window into his prayers for them earlier in the chapter, expressing joy to God for their partnership in the gospel and praying that their love would abound in all knowledge and discernment. And now here he turns and he thanks the Philippians for their prayers, their effective prayers on his behalf. Praying for one another is not only a command in Scripture, but it is a wonderful, glorious privilege. And it has power. We have evidence of this in Scripture through the answered prayers of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Naomi and Hannah and David and Elijah and even Paul himself, among many others. Something that struck me when I first came to Cherrydale over 12 years ago now was how when we would gather here together on a Sunday morning, people would just be praying for each other all the time. They didn't just promise that they would pray later in the week, but then they would just do it. Just pray for one another. It's never strange, even today, to see people in the worship center or in the commons or in the hallways interceding for a brother or sister. It's just part and parcel of our life together, and that's how it should be. Because prayer is powerful. We may not fully understand how God uses our prayers to accomplish his perfect will, but we know that he does. We know that he does. And so we must boldly approach God's throne of grace on behalf of one another. It's a beautiful exercise of our unity in Christ. And so here's an encouragement, particularly for those of you who are members of this church. Make it a goal to pray with or to pray for at least one other person each Sunday that you come here. You never know who might be needing the ministry of your prayer. So let's come each Sunday to the, on the Lord's Day expecting to be used of God in the life of another. Paul's confidence stems from the providence of God and the prayers of his people. And in verse 19, yet again, the provision of the Holy Spirit. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul makes a direct tie between the prayers of the people and what the ESV translates as the help of the Holy Spirit. It's translated elsewhere as, as provision or assistance. And by referring to him as the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Paul is emphasizing the fact that the Spirit's presence and power in the life of the Christian have been made possible by Jesus' finished work, his death and his resurrection. And so the Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Christ and he begins to apply the blessings and the benefits of God's grace to us. And I think we underestimate just how much at work he is every minute of our life to help us grow. Which is undoubtedly why Jesus called him the helper in John 15. He helps us. He is a provision to us. And we need his help in all things. And often, in concert with the prayers of others, he answers, always in accordance with his perfect will. And the Spirit doesn't merely help us in this life. He also seals us for the life to come. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. 
The Holy Spirit is the down payment for our promised future deliverance, and God would never make a down payment without intending to pay the full balance. And this leads us to a fourth reason for Paul's confidence in verse 20, the promises of God. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Now you might be wondering where you see the promises of God appear in this verse. Well, Paul doesn't use those verses, those words, or mention them directly, but he's clearly relying on them. And I see that in his use of one simple word, and that is hope. Now, when we use the word hope in everyday conversation, we use it to refer to a wish or a desire, something that we want to come true but may not come true. Vernacular hope always carries with it a twinge of uncertainty, but not biblical hope. Not the hope that Paul is referring to. Not the hope that Paul has. Biblical hope is something certain. It's something sure. Our Christian hope is something that we know will happen. We may not know when, but we know it's going to happen. And so this is where the promises of God come in, because the only way for Paul to have hope in his deliverance is because God's promises are giving him unwavering conviction as he sits chained to a Roman soldier awaiting a potential sentence of death. And we see throughout Scripture the fulfillment of countless promises. Many of them have already been fulfilled in Christ. And as his followers, we also have yet-to-be-fulfilled promises, like the promise of his return and the promise of his restoration of all things. We have the promise of escaping judgment our sin deserves because of Christ's sacrifice in our place. We have the promise of a tearless, sinless, deathless existence with him forever. We have the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. We have the promise of new, glorified, resurrected bodies that are fit for his presence. And we have the promise of reunion with our loved ones in Christ Jesus. And it's because God is a promise keeper that Paul can write these words, that he is hoping in his future deliverance, and that Christ will be honored in Paul's body, whether he's acquitted or released or found guilty and executed. And while this deep-seated dependence on God's promise is essential, there's one final closely related reason for Paul's confidence in his future deliverance, and it's his own commitment to persevere to the end. Look at verse 20 again. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or or by death. God is sovereign. Christians pray for one another. The Spirit seals us for our redemption and helps us to the end, and God will fulfill all his promises. But we aren't paper sailboats just floating down the stream. Paul knows that his actions matter. In Matthew 10, Jesus promised that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And because Paul knows that Christ will hold him fast and because he wants to honor God with his body and not bring shame and because he's filled with the Holy Spirit that will help him do that, he is committed to persevere to the end. Now, obviously, this is only possible with the Spirit's help, but we are active participants in our own Christian growth. A violin virtuoso doesn't get that way without practice. 
A world-class sprinter must be committed to rigorous training. And Paul even uses this exact illustration for his own perseverance and the perseverance of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, where he writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In these words of Paul, we sense his unshakable, spirit-wrought, prayer-sustained, promise-expecting commitment to follow Christ to the very end so that he will not be ashamed, so that he will not be disqualified. David writes in Psalm 34, the passage that Mitchell read earlier, that those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, if you're looking to God to uphold you and to sustain you to the very end, then you have no reason for shame, just as Paul would have no reason for shame. It didn't matter to him whether the pending decision would lead to his death or to his release. He finds confidence for these five reasons that we've mentioned. And he takes comfort in the two great option be options before him, in life or death. And he shares the benefits of these two options in the verses that remain, starting with verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, isn't it wonderful when you find yourself in a win-win situation? When you have only two options and you can see the blessings and the benefits of both? Well, it might be strange, but that's how Paul views his options of life or death as he awaits his verdict. And yet, he's hard-pressed. He cannot choose between the two. Again, he's using the language of choosing not to suggest that he's in ultimate control of his destiny, but simply to indicate that he does have a preference. And his profound words in these verses have helped shape the Christian view of death for the past 2,000 years. And as we contemplate our own mortality, they can help us too. So let's try to make sense of these two options using the key verse in this passage, a verse that likely many of you have memorized. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We'll look first at to live is Christ. What does this even mean, to live is Christ? We just really sang about it. All I have is Christ. Paul is declaring that there is no aspect of our lives as Christians that is hidden from Christ or separate from Christ because when we trust in him for salvation, we become one with him. This is a precious doctrine that we call union with Christ. We are in him and he is in us. Nothing can separate us from God's love because of our union with his son who died in our place. To live in Christ is to abandon every other fleeting interest for the supreme value of knowing and worshiping and pleasing and serving the Lord Jesus. 
Paul emphasizes his own service to the body of Christ and his usefulness to the Philippians in particular. And we see this singularity of focus as he shares the benefits of continuing to live, not for his own enjoyment, not for his own comfort or pleasure, not for his own personal preferences, but for his role as an instrument in his Redeemer's hands as he ministers to his fellow Christians in Philippi and elsewhere. Verse 22, to live means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. To live is Christ means to live a life committed to bearing fruit for God's glory and serving others in the precious name of Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. But Paul views his second option, death, as gain. His desire is to depart and to be with Christ. This is far better. This word for depart is used of soldiers breaking camp or for sailors lifting anchor and setting sail. Camping is great, but it's always so good to pack up your tent and head home and sleep in your own bed, isn't it? Sailing to foreign places is wonderful, but it's always a great feeling to depart and return to home port. And so it is with the Christian. This temporary existence can be wonderful, but our home is with Christ in his presence. And all the safety and security and blessing for which we long in this life is found ultimately only in him. We have many popular depictions of heaven from movies like What Dreams May Come and books like The Five People You Meet in Heaven and the more recent TV show The Good Place. And they largely seem to have one thing in common, the absence of God. But death is gain for Paul and for every follower of Jesus because we will be with our Lord. Heaven without Christ is no heaven at all. How can you have a wedding without a groom? How can you have a feast without the guest of honor? Jesus will be the focus of our eternal worship and contentment. David writes to God in Psalm 16, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And we read in Psalm 84, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. To die is gain because we will have full, unfettered fellowship with our Lord Jesus. So Paul has two great options before him. To live is to serve Christ and to serve others and to bear fruit for his glory. And to die is to possess Christ fully and to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. Both are experiences of Christ. Now if you're here today and you would not describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, I wonder what you think about death. About death in general and perhaps even your own death. Perhaps your concept of life after death is formed more by these popular depictions of a better place than by the Bible's many descriptions. You may even wonder why Christians talk so much about heaven and hell. Well, Christians talk about this because Jesus taught about it, and he taught about it a lot. He was emphatic that there are two options for people after death. The kingdom of heaven for those who trust in him, and a place of torment and separation from God that he calls Hades and describes as the outer darkness, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are two choices, and only one of them is good. Knowing God through his son Jesus Christ is the greatest experience in this life. It's greater than any 
other relationship you could possess. It's better than anything that you could own. It's better than any place that you could visit. Death will only be gained for you if you trust in the one who died for your sins and who rose magnificently from the grave to conquer death. Yes, we still mourn when a follower of Jesus dies. Yes, we still grieve over tragic losses of life as we've done as a nation these past two weeks. But we ourselves can face our own death with confidence, without fear, even with preference, as Paul does, once we throw ourselves at God's mercy and accept the only provision that he has made for our sin, and that is the death of his son in our place. And if you've never heard that good news before, if you want to know more or learn more, I would love to discuss that with you. So would any of our elders, frankly, any of the members of this church. I encourage you to talk to someone after the service. We'd love to tell you about our greatest joy. I want all of you, though, to hold out your hands. Every single one. Just hold out one hand in front of you straight. And if you were to imagine to, to the left of your hand, stretching for a mile all the way in this direction, that would put you right about Clarendon Circle. If you can imagine that mile between Clarendon Circle and your hand represents all of human history. And your hand represents the span of your life with respect to that human history. And our life is brief. The Bible describes it as a mist, a vapor, a fading flower. My wife, she loves peonies. And we spend all this time waiting for the peonies to come. And they're there for a hot second. They are beautiful. And then they fade. In fantastic fashion, they fade. That's how the Bible describes our life. And so it matters what we do with it. You can put your hands down. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We can't choose the outcome of our life, just like Paul couldn't choose the outcome of his trial. Our lives are not like some choose-your-own-adventure book. There is a sovereign God, the author and perfecter of our faith, who's working all things together in accordance with his perfect plan. And he knows the numbers of hairs on our head. But that doesn't mean that we don't have very real choices. That doesn't mean that what we do in these bodies doesn't matter. See, we could die as martyrs of our faith or we could die of cancer. We could die in a tragic accident or we could die asleep in our bed of old age. Only God knows. But studying Paul's encouragement and model has put steel in my bones. I've been reinvigorated to pour out my one brief life in service to Christ. Because I can either limp through this life or I can leverage it for Christ and for his glory with the unbridled resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. And so for followers of Jesus, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What would it look like for every member of this precious church to have Paul's mindset in this passage, to serve Christ and to serve others for as long as he has us here until the day he returns or calls us home. What would it look like? Well, I have a few pictures of what it might look like. If we have Paul's mindset, we will long to know Christ more. One day we'll see him face to face, but that doesn't mean that we can't grow in our knowledge of him and our relationship with him and our intimacy with him right here and now. Because we cannot exhaust the riches of God or the blessings of his gospel. And this word is a treasure trove. 
It is a treasure trove, and we should commit ourselves to seeking our Lord through Bible meditation and prayer of his scripture every day so that in our life we might know him more and more. If we have Paul's mindset, we will serve others. We will serve others for their growth, for their progress, for their joy in the Lord. This means that we're sharing the good news with others. This means that while we're on this camping expedition together, that we're praying for and encouraging one another to endure the elements and to persevere until we pack up these earthly tents and we head home to be with Christ. We will be known for serving others. If we have Paul's mindset, we will maximize our time and our money for kingdom work. Because you see, there's a temptation, even for Christians, to try to create heaven here on earth by the comforts and the conveniences and we purchase and by the places we visit. But it doesn't take long, does it, to figure out that no amount of money can erase the reality of sin's curse. None. And so let's be countercultural people who know, who know that our deliverance is coming and who know that heaven is real and who know that it's our forever home and who know that we want other people to join us there to be with God for endless days. Let's trade in our bucket lists and steward our resources for kingdom work so that others who have not yet heard this glorious, wonderful, good news about Jesus can experience the joys of heaven with us. Life is short, but eternity is forever. And finally, if we have Paul's mindset, we'll face this life and death with courage and with joy. Following Jesus could lose you your job. Following Jesus could lose your, your life in many places around the world. It could even cost you your family, like Eliza. But this passage reminds us that believers in Christ, for believers in Christ, death is gain. And as a pastor, I get to spend a lot of time with precious saints who are standing at the threshold of heaven. And you might think that that would be a depressing part of this job. But you know what? I love it. I love it because when I'm sitting there in that room, you know what they're talking about? They're not talking about things they didn't buy. They're not talking about places they didn't go. They're talking about God's love for them, Jesus' love for them, and their love for him. That's how I want to go. There's a 19th century Spanish hymn called, It Is Not Death to Die. And I want to close with the updated English lyrics. It is not death to die to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you forevermore. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, it is not death to die. So find joyful confidence in your future deliverance. And let's together, as a family, leverage whatever life we might have on this earth for Christ's glory and for the joy and the service of others. Let's pray. God, we feel so grateful that you would spare us. Uh, that you would look upon us and see in our place your son Jesus by faith, by grace, through our faith. What a gift. What a blessing. 
And I pray that that reality, that, that strength, that confidence of knowing that one day we'll be with you forever would just strengthen our faith and our hope today. And I pray that anyone who's here who has not put their trust in your son would do so as your spirit woos and calls them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.